Amen. Thank you, Weston. Um, today's gospel reading is from Matthew chapter 24, and we will start there. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, well, today is tricky, and not least of all, because I've never done this. Um, there's a lot here today in the readings, the themes, and the start of Advent, so let's see if we can connect a few strings. Uh, first up, we've got Advent. And we may know this is a season on the church calendar, as Weston mentioned. We may also know a little more than that, as he talked about, that this relates to the coming of Jesus. But what does this mean for us? Uh, wh what do we, as followers of Jesus, do in this season? Do we resign ourselves to the birthday party in December, where we give presents and then offer a quick thanks to baby Jesus on our way from the tree to the breakfast buffet? Do we retreat from capitalist society, mock corporations for their hedonism, and meditate like monks for the next 30 days in penance? Simply put, what is Advent for? German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, the celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect, and who look forward to something greater to come. And this, I think, is the key. At its core, Advent is our season of recognizing where we stand in the scope of redemptive history, of everything that God has done and has promised to do, and we reflect on it. We examine our faith and our reason for it, looking backwards to the incarnation of Jesus. We acknowledge our sin and the devastation it continues to wreak on God's good creation, and we lay hold of his promise to restore all things. So we're looking forward to Christ's coming, or his advent, taken from the Latin adventus, or the Greek parousia. We have seen the first, and we expect the second. Now, week one of the advent season traditionally concerns hope, and I think a careful listening of today's readings may have clued you in on this. In the Old Testament, both Isaiah and the psalmist look forward to a day when God's promise for full restoration is realized, when a king in the line of David reigns again and when evil is done away with. Then in the New Testament, there's also a tone of hope, but it's, it's from a slightly different perspective. Whereas Isaiah and the psalmist were writing about God's renewal of all things from one side of the incarnation, Paul and Matthew, who is quoting Jesus, are writing from the other side. So all four of our texts today look forward to something, but two of them look forward to all of it, while the other two look forward to the rest of it. 
See, Old Testament authors tend to treat God's restoration of all things as a one-act play, while those of us living after Jesus' first advent realize there's a second act. Our hope is in a continuation of what God has already begun in Jesus. Now, before I, mutter, I further muddy the waters with all of this, I think it would be wise to stop and examine hope. Because for me, it's always been a little bit hard to pin down. Hope is kind of vague. It just sounds like a concept, and I don't like vague. Um, I've often thought of hope as just wanting things to happen. And I think because of that, I've often confused hope with anxiety. Uh, you may not suffer from this confusion, but I'll just set aside these assumptions and ensure we're on the same page when we throw around the word hope. So a classical definition of the word hope is simply this, to cherish a desire with anticipation, or simply put, to trust. And trust is vastly different than being anxious for something. I'm anxious when I don't know the outcome of a situation, even if I have been given some information. But that stems from a lack of trust. I'm less anxious about something when I have faith in the source of my information. The writer of Hebrews famously explains this by saying, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So this difference between anxiety and hope, or, or really maybe false hope and true hope, is what I want to examine today, because I believe this is really what's at the core of our two New Testament passages. Jesus' words in Matthew 24 set before us our reason for trust, for hope. And then Paul's words in Romans 13 show us what it looks like to live in light of this hope. So we'll start with Matthew 24, um, and I want to acknowledge what for many may be the elephant in the room so that we can get past it and focus on what's important. And what do I mean by that statement? Matthew 24 is one of two chapters known as the Olivet Discourse. This is two days before the Passover, so it's in the middle of what we call Holy Week, which runs from Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, through his crucifixion, and then ultimately to his resurrection. Directly before this passage in Matthew 24, Jesus spent a few chapters teaching in the temple and verbally dismantling both the Pharisees and the Sadducees for their practices. Then he laments over Jerusalem and the temple. Jesus and his disciples then walk out of the temple, and one of them turns and basically says, man, it's a pretty building, isn't it? To which Jesus responds, yeah, it's going to be destroyed entirely. So naturally, the disciples look at him and ask, whoa, wait a minute, when is that happening? And then they tack on another question. Oh, and by the way, what is the sign of your coming? Which makes sense, right? If somebody told us that Shreveport was going to be nuked, but then they would restore all things when they returned, what are the two questions you're going to ask? So what follows is the Olivet Discourse. Jesus sits down on a hill with his disciples and answers both of those questions. When is Jerusalem going to be destroyed? And what is the sign of your coming? Our passage, toward the end of chapter 24, picks up on that second question. However, if you conflate the two questions, the whole thing kind of reads like a doomsday prophecy over the entire earth. And that, I think, is the hope-crushing, anxiety-producing elephant in the room. Because I'm sure we've all heard of folks who really make an entire career out of conflating these questions, which confuses the emphasis and creates fear in their audience by explaining the downfall of society and pinpointing the day of Jesus' return. Which is kind of funny because that return is supposed to be literally the greatest thing ever. So 
Real quick, just think of like a date on a calendar or a feast period during the year or maybe even a historical event unfolding on a global stage before our very eyes that tells us without a doubt Jesus is coming back in 30 minutes or less. And then look at the words on the page that we just read. Because I think Jesus puts it way more plainly than we often want to make it. No one knows. When is Jesus coming back? No one knows. When does God make all things new? No one knows. When does a war, a plague, a famine, or an astrological sign point to something deeper and more mystical? No one knows. Not even the angels in heaven. This is added to really hammer home Jesus' point. He goes on, only the Father knows. If you're like me, you read that and go, yeah, but aren't you and the Father one? R.T. France here comments that this is perhaps the clearest statement in the New Testament of a limitation of Jesus' knowledge. Significant in that it expresses father-son language and combines intimate unity with dependence. But in any case, Jesus is making it expressly clear that God's full redemption is both planned and certain, but the date is not to be known or discerned. So just for a moment, let's consider that there's a possibility that these guessing games or doomsday prepping could just be grandiose exercises in missing the point here. And I do think there is a point to Jesus' words. After all, he's sitting on a hill facing Jerusalem, speaking with his disciples, answering their questions, not trying to sneak a hidden message past them down through the millennia to us. Jesus, when are you coming back? The answer? No one knows. But be ready. That answer is not meant to instill fear, but hope. Not anxiety, but trust. Jesus goes on to discuss the reality of it all in our passage today. For many, it will be a surprise. Life will continue as usual up until his return, his parousia or adventus, just like the days of Noah were, says Jesus. Commentator Leon Morris notes that the similarity here is in the timing and the cultural theme by Jesus using the story of Noah. Noah built an ark, which surely took a long amount of time, but then the flood came suddenly. In that time, Noah lived his life in service to God. So both facets of this story are meant to be mirrored in Jesus' words here. There will be a time of waiting before his second coming, but readiness is expected of those living in hope and trust. Now, I realize with some of that, it may seem like I'm beating up on an interpretive camp that you may have never even heard of. But my fear is this. This method of reading Jesus' words in Matthew creates a false hope. Using that interpretive lens is essentially saying, I can know what God knows. Which, without even leaving this passage, is in direct conflict with the very words of Jesus. No one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So, so this is the danger, and this can be extrapolated from just reading this passage to reading all of Scripture as a whole, or even the way that we conduct our lives. When there is no room for control outside of our own, then there is no room for hope outside of ourselves. And if you want to talk about anxiety, that right there has got to be the origin. But remain ready. There's the actual point here. Jesus makes that point three times with the flood imagery in verses 37 through 39, then the surprise of regular life being disrupted in verses 40 through 42, and then finally the absurdity of a thief letting you know when he's going to break into your house in verse 43. The idea here is that his coming will be sudden, but his instruction is to be ready. 
So if being ready means putting our hope in Jesus and not in ourselves, then what does that look like? How does that play out? And I think here is where we can flip over and look at Romans 13. In this section of Romans, Paul is launching into what it looks like to live as a follower of Christ. We must conduct ourselves in humility, love, charity. Through the Spirit of God who lives within us, we follow the example of Jesus and live as he did, which in turn gratifies the Spirit and not the flesh. As we do this, we still wait on the full reunion of God and humanity, but now we wait with hope. Because here's the beauty of it. We now exist in an age when the evil that separates us from God has been dealt with by a mediator. And while Jesus has not yet returned to make all things new, he has arrived once to set in motion the final part of the plan. So he has crushed the enemy, and though we await his return, we have the ability to live with him now and know in part what that reunion will look like. Because we can't pinpoint this day or the second advent, we should consider the time as near. That's what Paul says. The day is at hand, so cast off the works of darkness. And keep awake, as Jesus says, not literally, but metaphorically, in order to keep yourself from the wiles of the enemy, who is crushed and is defeated, but is lashing out in death throes to inflict as much damage as possible on anyone it could touch. And I think the danger is that the touch of the enemy often masquerades as hope. Paul warns us of a misplaced hope in the explanation of a misguided life here in Romans 13, verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. His list, just before this verse, is not exhaustive. Orgies, drunkenness, sexual immorality, quarreling, jealousy. There are plenty of other ways we might gratify desires of the flesh, but we're called instead to put on Christ, or the armor of light. In other words, to live and act in a way that feeds from Christ as our source of satisfaction and hope. So as we enter Advent and approach Christmas, can you think of any particular way that the world might try and fulfill our hopes or our wants? And do you think it might have anything to do with the estimated three and a half thousand advertisements we see every day? In his book on consumer Christianity, author Sky Jatani notes that our advertisement-soaked existence promises that satisfaction is just one more purchase away. But here's the problem, as he goes on to explain. The same corporations that promise satisfaction produce the ads which invoke our desire to get the thing that promises, that satisfies. So it's a loop of insatiability. It's just a drive toward consumerism. And what it results in is little to no self-control or basis of hope. And this weakness that we have is exploited to the fullest sense right now in this very same season that looks forward to the ultimate hope of the world. And that's just criminal. So here's the challenge, at least as I see it. We are all putting our hope in something or someone. Despite this, we as a nation and a culture suffer from crippling rates of anxiety and depression. Around this time of year, we spice things up by calling it seasonal. But if we're honest, the other 11 months of stress, despite our excess and comfort, really don't look much different. Now, don't misunderstand me, because I'm not a psychiatrist, and I will not diminish the existence nor the effects of clinical depression. 
but dozens of thousands of books written on self-help and thousands of daily advertisements telling us where to find satisfaction have created some terrible results. If, however, you are a follower of Jesus, you're claiming to model your life after someone who said things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life, or I am the bread of life, or I am living water. These are claims that meet needs, true needs. They give hope. If you have a copy of the New City Catechism, which I highly recommend, the first question on the list is this. What is our only hope in life and death? And the answer? That we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. My little girls can answer that one with, Jesus! We're working on the rest of it. I think knowing this, truly knowing it, brings us one step closer to putting on Christ. We can agree with it mentally, we can speak it verbally, but what does it look like to live in a way that says, my hope for myself, my spouse, my kids, my friends, my community, is the return of Jesus to restore all things? Better yet, what are we modeling to ourselves or to our children when the season of Advent or the holiday season in general is one that triggers a heightened sense of anxiety? Are we under any illusion that they can't see our struggles or that they aren't learning from the example we're setting? In the rush and the frustration of a holiday season that the world demands is focused on consumption, can we showcase to our family and our neighbors the peace that comes with a deep understanding of Jesus when he says that he's coming back? Or, in an age when personal perfection seems to be achievable, whether that's through dieting or fitness or politics or social media presence, can we recognize our pride and realize that perfection has only ever existed in one person? Described in Hebrews as the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. In other words, my hope can't be me. It can't be my wife or my kids or my finances, or physical fitness, or even a set of rigid spiritual disciplines. What about that? Because we talk about that all the time, right? You have to have disciplines in place. You're being discipled by someone or something every minute of the day. You can't see any spiritual formation without these disciplines. I think all of those things are true to an extent. And yet, if these disciplines are both the means and the end, then we've got a cart before the horse situation. We don't read scripture, or pray, or meditate, or fast, or take part in the Sunday gathering, or do any of that to achieve righteousness, but rather to receive help from the Holy Spirit in our formation. Gerald Sitzer, looking at Western culture's self-help obsession, says this, We like to think we can master anything if we just learn the right technique. Sadly, we approach spirituality the same way. In that same book, Sitzer quotes an unnamed early church father who sums it up with a much more scathing remark. Even if our mouths stink with fasting and we have learned all the scriptures and have memorized the whole Psalter, we still lack what God wants, humility and charity. And some of that sounds like Romans 13. This underscores the fact that we're not the ones responsible for the change in our hearts. 
As much as we don't want to place our hope in a politician or an exercise routine or a comfortable lifestyle, we also don't want to put the burden of our hope on our own ability to manufacture something through even spiritual disciplines. Because what does Jesus say about the kingdom? It's like seed that a man scatters on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, but he knows not how. See, the man here is doing his part, but he's not responsible for the growth. His hope is not in himself. To run that metaphor back into spiritual disciplines, I would suggest, yet again, that we use spiritual disciplines and employ them often in our lives, but, as Brian Hedges says, less like a ladder of spiritual rungs to climb and more like a palette of paints with which the Spirit can create a beautiful picture of Jesus in us. So, to be perfectly clear, I'm a very good case study on misplaced hope. Uh, my family recently got back from a long Disney vacation, and I still have the pressing urge to do it all again. Why? And my wife is saying, yes, why? Well, because this was a mountaintop moment for consumerism. For those few days, everything around us catered to our surface desires, promising happiness and satisfaction, while simultaneously letting us know we would have neither without the next experience for just another swipe of the credit card. This is our prevailing culture at work. The question is, do I buy in completely and tell my wife, my kids, my friends, yes, this is what happiness is, right here on the Mount Sinai of Orlando, Florida. And you will never experience this again until you make your pilgrimage and wear the magic Mickey ears. Or do I recognize that those experiences, while fun, offer nothing in the way of deep satisfaction? And that's not to say that fun is dumb and vacations are pointless. I like both, and I like them a lot. But is my life going to be about drudging through the muck of the mundane in search of my next mountaintop moment? Or will I put on Christ and live with a deep daily satisfaction that the one who has conquered the world sustains me as well? And oh, by the way, these sparks of joy and fun and breaks in the ordinary should point to his goodness. But they're not goodness on their own. And I'm certainly not the one who creates any of it. So, remember, this season concerns an examination, as Bonhoeffer said. We contemplate our inability to attain perfection in ourselves or our environment, and we look forward to the one who has promised to deliver that and so much more for his glory and in the most fortunate turn of events, our benefit as well. I asked a few questions earlier. What is Advent for? What is our hope about? And what does this mean for us as followers of Jesus? So let's quickly recap. Advent is simply the season when we, aware of our faults, but equally aware of God's grace, look forward to Jesus' return. Our hope is in that return and in the restoration of everything that has been broken by sin, but is right here in our midst already being made whole again through Jesus' redemption of sinners and his work through us to display the kingdom of God to the world. And what it means is that our satisfaction doesn't come from an experience or a present or a family gathering or even a grande ice sugar cookie almond milk latte, no matter how tasty that thing is. 
After all, our desires are innumerable, and the means by which we may feed them equally so. But there is one hope for humanity in life and death, and that should comfort us. We're not our own. We don't have to figure this thing out. We don't have to save the world. We don't even have to save ourselves. The one who has saved, is saving, and will save, lives in us, sustains us, satisfies us, does his work through our humility and charity and trust. So, enjoy traveling and being generous and giving gifts. Enjoy being with family in this season. And yes, enjoy a grande ice sugar cookie almond milk latte. In fact, enjoy three of them. But keep in mind the fact that these things are only good if they're not acting as our hope. Every good thing in life should point us toward Jesus, not take his place. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But you do know he's coming. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help us to examine our lives in this season. That you would allow us to step back and see where we have introduced anxiety and unnecessary stress in our own striving to achieve something, to attain perfection or to make things happen or to get control. Remind us of our hope and allow this season to usher in a new year with you in control, Lord. Help us to remember our one living hope and to align our lives under Christ, to live as he has modeled life in the rhythms that you've set in place, to love you, to love others, to serve those around us. We thank you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.